We are speaking with the singer-songwriter Bruce Sedano. The new one coming out October 1st is Ode to a Nightingale. And how we, uh, as we say here in Montreal, bonjour. How are you? Oh, uh, très bien. Et vous? Très, très bien, actually. Very ah. well. Ah, uh, so much to talk about because you, you put out Spirals Volume 1 last year and Spirals Volume 2. Yeah. You have been on a crazy stretch of just writing 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 so let's talk about that is this is it pandemic driven is it creative driven is it pandemic meets creative what what are uh, we it's it's really uh, creative driven and and it's it's kind of been a role uh that i've been on for a number of years um uh, you know this incarnation of bruce sedano singer songwriter you know i have a long music history in the music business but in, yep. in 2012 my my wife of 32 years passed away and, and uh it, it it was uh a, a moment where uh writing basically uh centered me saved me in some you know uh kind of way uh, by the way i just want to say uh i know donna Somers passed away and so my, my i got goosebumps because i loved her she was great yes. and, and just just you bring it look i mean you can see that it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Much respect to her. Absolutely. Yeah. No, she was the greatest. You know, uh, she yeah. was uh, a a great. You know, obviously a great artist, a great singer, a great songwriter, a great entertainer, but also, you know, an even better human being and, and uh, a great mother to our kids. And uh, yep. so, yeah, she was um, one of a kind. You know, I've met a lot of people, and and. Uh, there was nobody like her. But anyway, oh, to a nightingale. So anyway, so back then in 2012 was when I, I kind of had to, you know, because, you know, at, at some point in time, I, I, you know, focused on being a songwriter because uh -huh. Donna had her career. We had kids, you know, and 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 so uh, and being a songwriter was always my number one, you know, uh, thing that uh even though I spent all of my life playing in different bands and with Donna and all that. So anyway, here I am. Uh, I'm emotionally driven uh, because of what went on in my life. So I I did a number of CDs that took me out of, you know, this period of hurt and loss. And, and it kind of transitioned into me falling back in love again and meeting a new woman and, and uh, remarrying and and. And at the same time, discovering this person of voice and guitar and song uh, and evolving that back up. And <laughs> so the new record kind of is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, the, the latest in, in, uh, incarnation of right. that in, initial fire. Um, and uh, even myself, I wonder if and when uh, it, it peters out. But, but uh, I, I've been blessed to be uh, this creative. I didn't anticipate it uh, this far down the line in my life. Uh, it, it was, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing to be able to uh, continue to evolve and develop and, and uh, yep. you know, like that. Well, let me ask you about evolving and in, in, in development. And I'm just going to I'm going to re make reference to two songs that you wrote uh, way back when you, of course, wrote the number one disco song, 
bad girls or you co-wrote it yep and you wrote the number one country song starting over again that that dolly parton did Uh, how do you approach songwriting because writing a disco to me writing a disco song is different than writing a country song but is it all just sort of the same thing and it's really just down to the interpretation uh i mean that that's that could be a big part of it um but you know what you know, I do live, I do Bad Girls live now, just me and the acoustic guitar. Yeah. And, and that's how the song was written. Right. Um, uh, really? Uh, wait, wait, wait. It was written just acoustic and guitar? Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of yeah. artists, including Brian Adams, who's a Canadian, has said that a great song starts either on a piano and a vocal or yeah. an acoustic guitar and a vocal. And that wa- that's why that works. Yeah, no, no, w- without a doubt. And, and uh, another thing that I sometimes do just to add to Brian's uh, uh, position, which I agree with, is sometimes if it's even if it's an up tempo song, I will slow it down uh, just to translate it that way, just to it, it almost puts it under more of a, of a microscope in terms of, you know, viewing your song and, and analyzing what you're doing. But anyway, so uh, to your point about songwriting, um, yeah, I, I write with an acoustic guitar or a piano and that's how it's always been starting over again uh w- was written on a piano you know and and, and uh, um but the th- you know the, the thing that they have in common is, is that uh uh you know th- they're story songs right you know and and as a songwriter that's a, a big part of how i you know work uh um uh, I have trouble when I get to the lighter fare uh, of, of uh, um, uh, uh, but anyway, um, so yeah, acoustic guitar, piano, it's an emotion, it's a, it's a story, uh, it's a message and, and uh, translating it. So when I do it on acoustic guitar, Bad Girls, you know, uh, it breaks down much more uh, bluesy. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it, it, to me, it's it's a, it's a, a Brooklyn R and B song. You know, I mean, um, and uh, it got translated in the moment uh, uh, as I mean, it was a number one R and B song as well. But but you know, at the moment, it was all about disco in 1979, and and that's how yeah. that song you know lives. Yeah. And what a great song. And, and I'm just thinking, you know, I, I'm speaking to the writer of Bad Girls this afternoon. And this morning I, I spoke to the guy who sung You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. So I'm yeah. having a complete, yeah. <laughs> complete yeah. disco day. Yeah. Uh, when we get to Ode to a Nightingale and Spirals Volume 1, Spirals Volume 2, and the other stuff that you've done in the last uh, eight, nine years, is the songwriting process the same? I mean, do you, do you write the same as you did when you were a young whippersnapper in the seventies, or have you completely changed it? Do, do you sort of pull it apart differently? What's, what's. Yeah, no, it, again, uh, to use the word evolution again, right. you know, it's, it's an evolution, you know, uh, um, you know, a, and for me, you know, it typically starts with the, with the inspiration of, of a seed of, of something that I get that I feel, ah, it resonates to me. I, I, you know, I get that feeling and, and I work through that and I try to c- capture as much of the initial inspiration and uh, 
uh, and then the, you know, the process comes down to, okay, what am I really trying to say? Um, uh, you know, I don't want to be cliche. I want to keep it special. I want to keep it unique, uh, to my voice because now I have, I'm translating everything that I write through my voice. So that, that has its, its own strengths and weaknesses, you know? And, and so that's also kind of shaping, uh, I think, you know, that may be one difference, you know, because, uh, in the past, a lot of songs that I wrote or co-wrote, uh, uh, I, I was writing beyond my voice. Do, do you, you have know, to think of voice when you're writing? I mean, you have to think, okay, Donna's going to sing it this way. She has this kind of inflection. No, I, I don't, not with, no. not, not with, you know. Uh, or you Dolly know, or anybody else. Yeah, not with, with what I would call the natural born singers. You know, Donna was a natural born singer. There was no limitation on what she could do. She yep. could, you know, she could interpret it this way. She could interpret it that way, uh, you know, and, and, and for her, you know, it was really about how to separate those, those interpretations. And that she did by who's the character in this song and, and who, what person is singing the song. Right. So that, that would dictate. For me, what I, what I, you know, because of the constraints of my voice, you know, I, I'm, you know, uh, being a singer, I'm not a natural born singer. I am somebody who is still evolving even as a singer and understanding how to sing and, and what complements my voice and who, you know, and, and, and incorporating, you know, as I continue to grow and, you know, but melodically uh, a part of how I research what I'm writing is where is it comfortable for my voice? and. And, and melodically, uh, is this suiting my voice? And am I still communicating the emotion? And, and uh, uh, am I is it connecting? You know, and, and uh, so I don't know if that answers the question. But that. It does. Now, um, let me ask you real quick, uh, again, back, uh, back from the day here, because you were part of the Casablanca Records family. Yes, I was in a band called Brooklyn Dreams. We were a trio uh, yep. with, with Joe Bean Esposito and Eddie Hoganson, and uh, we did four albums uh, as the Brooklyn Dreams. Yeah. So, so I just want to—I'm very curious about that because you know, obviously the disco stuff is there, but but Casablanca was the home to Kiss, and Neil Bogart sort of gambled a house on Kiss being popular, and and it didn't really pan out at the beginning, and then uh, then it, it hit. Uh, what was Neil like in terms of a record company president, in terms of a guy who was supporting his bands? I mean, did he come to the shows and pat you on the back and make sure you were taken care of? Uh, talk to me a little bit about Neil. Um, Neil Bogart was uh, a great record man. Okay. Um, he he was an He was you know he was kind of like the last of the. Um, uh, entrepreneurial, uh, visionary, uh, little label guys. You know, uh, back in the day, there were many individual labels with, with uh, you know, people at the head who were inspirational and visionary and, you know, <laughs> and Neil was, had a lot of creative energy and he was a believer, you right. know, and if he believed there was, 
there was no mountain too high. There was no wall too thick. There was no, you know, depth too deep. He, he, there's gotta be a way because I believe in this and I believe in it because it's great, you know, and, and uh, you know, and it was always, a, you know, and he was a great marketing guy at the same time, you know, because, you know, he, he built images, you know, he put images around uh, the artist, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, as it applies to the Brooklyn dreams, you know, it's like th that was part of the problem with why I believe we didn't succeed uh, bigger than we did. You know, uh, the first Brooklyn dreams album was uh, more of an R and B record, you know, right. and, and it was on, a, it was on a label called millennium. Right. Uh, and, and what happened there was after that first album, uh, I, I, you know, Donna and I and the Brooklyn Dreams were all hanging together at that point, you know, and I think Neil, uh, you know, and the Brooklyn first Brooklyn Dreams album came out to much critical acclaim and a couple of chart records. And and I think Neil got nervous about the relationship with me and Donna, and then found a way, found a way to buy our contract uh, from Millennium. And now we were on Casablanca and we were expected to be disco, which, you know, we really weren't, you know, we were, right. you know, three song singer songwriters who grew up on, you know, Sam and Dave and the Rolling Stones, you know, I mean, so here we were and we were kind of so we were kind of a little bit like fish out of water. And, and uh, you know, so I'm getting back to the identity thing of, yeah. of what he could build around the artist. I, I think, you know, we missed with that, but uh, he certainly nailed it with Kiss and, and with Donna, you know, and it, and it was really Donna, you know, it was really Donna who uh, basically saved the label, you know, it, and, That's an and, interesting take. Uh, let me hear yeah. that because we all talk about, oh, Kiss Alive became a big, massive thing and saved the label. But yeah, so yeah. it's Donna that saved the label. Uh, in my in my opinion, okay, uh, uh, um, uh, it, it it was Donna that saved the label and and allowed uh, allowed you know, I mean, not of course, Kiss was huge as as well. It's right around right. the same time period, but but. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was really Donna. Donna Donna was selling a lot of records, you know. Yes, yeah, she was. And, you know, <laughs> and, you little know, kid yeah. in Montreal heard them. I can tell you yeah. that much. Four consecutive double albums, you know. Uh, Platinum uh, nonstop. Yeah. yeah. So so. Uh, what was the vibe but, like back then for you as a as a musician? Because you you said you're a singer songwriter. They try to turn you into a disco guy, and and you're like, I'm not a disco guy, and then. At the corner of your eye, you see these four guys in makeup. Were, were you thinking, wow, this is the 70s and this is wild and crazy and it's fun? Or were you thinking, what the hell is that? And why am I singing disco? <laughs> no, I, it was a very exciting time. And, and, I can imagine. Uh, um, you know, we were all going uh, very fast. Yeah. Uh, uh, not in a bad way, in a good way. Because when, you know, you have those moments, uh, um, it's all the way live plus you know so but you got but you got to go with it you know to a point you know and this is always the, the tricky part is how do you transition you know out of that and how you how do you maintain um a, a life and a career 
for the long haul, you know, uh, without becoming a casualty, you know, uh, uh, because it is really intense, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, Brooklyn Dreams got to take that ride under Donna's wing because we toured together and, and uh, you know, we wrote together and, and uh, uh, so, so, and, you know, obviously at some point she and I got married. So, so, yep. uh, uh but I have only good memories of it. You know, it, it was it was part of uh, you know a very exciting journey that I've lived. It was lived, a great you know? scene. I mean, the '70s no. and '80s were were a great no. music scene. Let me ask you no. this: in terms of making records, because now, you know, now if I give uh, "Bad Girls" to the local pop kid, it's going to be Pro Tool and it's going to be samples and it's going. When you and Brooklyn Dreams and 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 you know, starting over with Dolly Parton. And, how what, did you record organically? Did you get all those sort of disco sounds with real players, or were there some kind of studio trick? Because I mean, obviously, you didn't have Pro Tools. No, uh, um, you know, all, all those records were real players. Wow. It really wasn't until uh, what an art. I mean, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, well, well, you know, I mean, we do it know, differently. Let's put it that way. Yeah, well, very, very, very much so in, in one way. But, you know, but my roots are, you know, I, I co-wrote my first chart record in 1969 with Tommy James for Tommy James and the, the Chandel, Chandels. Yeah. You know, and and he was the first guy that brought me into a recording studio when, when I was still in my teens and, and uh, you know, show, you know, it was eight tracks, you know, uh, and that, 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 was, that was a big leap from the four tracks, you know, right. and, and but was cutting it, edge technology. Yeah. But, but even there, it was guys playing in the studio and, you know, there, obviously there was no computers then or, nope. you know, and, and um, so even when we did uh, Brooklyn dreams albums uh, and, and those Donna Salmer albums, you know, through bad girls, uh, it, it, it was, you know, of course, there's I feel love, and that kind of began to change that picture. You know, uh, oddly enough, but but it was it was typically you know bass, guitar, drums, keys, uh, and then uh, you know as in in the d disco realm of things, if in those days we would we would overdub, uh, right. you know, synth sounds, uh, you know, and and. And the synth programming, even if it was foundational, was was limited. You know, it, it was it was generally real players. Was, you know, coming out of you know those Donna records, it was rhythm sections, strings, and horns. I mean, once wow. upon a time, enough is enough. Last dance. That there's no synth. You know, that's pre-synth stuff. Um, same thing with the early Brooklyn Dreams albums. It's it's all you know. Uh, it's really not until you start getting into after I feel love and, and things evolved into, you know, the beginning of the eighties that it became more and more computer driven and, and like that. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think, uh, imagine Mutt Lang producer, Mutt Lang in, in a day of yeah. eight track, he wouldn't know what to do. The poor, the poor guy wouldn't know what to do. Yeah, But, but he would have grouped in gray <laughs> with a track because he's just, you know, he's a genius. It, it's, it's really about the mind and the creative mind and the freedom to use the tools that you have and taking the time and care and interest to play around with them, yep. you know, uh, uh, so, so yeah, so uh, Mutt would be great in, in, in any, any era. No, I agree. I, I, I love Mutt. I mean, I mean, you know, yeah. Foreigner 4, Back in Black, Def Leppard Hysteria. I mean, uh, you, yeah, you're going to yeah, complain? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I'll even take Shania Twain. Great, some great oh, records. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. No yeah. And and Nickelback yeah. too. Let's not forget yeah. he did he yeah. did Dark Horse. Yeah. Um, when you get to Ode to a Nightingale, what yeah. is your recording process? Do you like the sort of let's get a band in here and let's or let's get me in here and do this, or do you use a little bit of modern magic? You know, I, I like it all depending on the circumstance. So okay. for this particular record, you know, it, it's COVID times. I'm living in Milan. You know, and uh, I have, you know, this room, you know, that's my, you know, creative room. And and uh, I go in there and I have a Pro Tools and I have a guitar. And again, I'm writing on the acoustic guitar and um, I get the song. And, and so what I did with this, because of this situation, you know, Spirals Volume Two was a mix of in the studio was mostly in the studio. Spirals Volume One was all in the studio. Shelter Island Sound in New York, you know, produced by Steve Adabo. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, but COVID time, different different constraint, but still the tools to do it with. Luckily enough, and, and uh, so I basically put all my guitar parts down, did all my vocals, did all my harmonies, you know, set the tempo played some keys on some of them and sent that all to my producer in LA, Randy Ray Mitchell, who, who's produced, you know, most of Spirals Volume 2, and I've worked with him for a long time. Uh, he's a, he's a, a great producer and an amazing guitarist in his own right. He was Donna's guitarist for many years. We, we, we played together a long time. Anyway, so sent it all to Randy in LA. He puts on guitars um, and bass. You know, and, and we, we kind of go back and forth about who should play bass on this and and and, and whatever. Uh, and, and the same with the drums. Who's the right drummer for this? Uh, then he would overdub the drums in his studio, send it to me uh, and, and back and forth that way. until I came back to L.A. in April, stayed for a month and we mixed the record together. And, and uh, so... You know, that's that's what this demanded. And uh, like I, I said, you know, you, I like to use the tools that are at, at hand uh, is kind of my philosophy. And yeah. uh, I'll, I'll end on this. We, we've had, you know, this like we said, this consecutive or this great output. Mm -hmm. Is this the period at the end of the output or is this just sort of part of you're on you're still on the train here and we're still moving? Like, do you see yourself out with a new one? In early 2022, I mean, are we, are we still, are the creative juices still flowing? Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that uh, at this point. Uh, um, you know, when, when, you know, once for me anyway, once I finish a project, um, I, I like to, uh, you know, it becomes a different phase of it. You know, I'm talking to people like you, uh, yeah. I'm, uh, you know, visiting my grandkids, Right. And, you know, I think part of my process is living so that I can write, you know, uh, you know, keep living, keep writing. You have, you know, for me, it's I, I got to find th those sparks that are doing it. So um, I anticipate continuing. Uh, 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 I anticipate a phase of going around and playing and coming to places like Montreal and doing a night or two and doing a little pocket of Canadian gigs and, uh, you know, a UK little run. Right. And, and also at the same time, I'm thinking about uh, 
because most of my life is L.A. Milan, of having an L.A.-based band and, a, and an Italian-based band and doing residencies for periods of time uh, because I miss playing, you know, that, yeah. what, 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 you know, the one emotion that I, I'm left with right now more than anything through the COVID period is I miss playing with other people. And, and, and uh, yep. I, you know, I miss I going to shows. I haven't been yeah, to a show since yeah, March of 2020. Yeah. So, yeah. And I have enough of a song base now to really draw from. And uh, I've done enough playing by myself to have uh, an understanding of who who I am on stage and, and what uh, and what I'm bringing and what that is. And, and uh, you know, and I'm excited to expand it musically with other players and, and all of the above. So. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bruce Sedano, Ode to a Nightingale, uh, out October 1st. And uh, as we say in Montreal, merci. Absolutely. Okay. An absolute pleasure today. We got some yeah. great stories. And great, man. Thank you for I that. had a good time, too. We'll do it again in the future. And Absolutely. I'll see you in Montreal in some little club. Yes, you will. And uh, you you let me know, and I'll make sure to promote it, too. Will do. Thanks, Thank brother. Thank you, sir. Ciao. Cheers. Bye-bye now.